Welcome to the Cold Steel Podcast, hosted by Amir Farouk and myself, Chad Ball. We consider it an absolute privilege to bring you guests from around the world who are truly experts in their craft. Our mission is to offer you a combination of not only masterclasses on clinical surgery topics, but also insights into achieving personal growth, productivity, and fulfillment as both a surgeon and perhaps more importantly, as a human. This week on the podcast, we invited Corey White, an absolutely fabulous and experienced medical office assistant, to talk about what it takes to set up a well-functioning office. Corey breaks down how to find a good assistant and what goes into setting up an efficient system. We'd love to hear from listeners. What do you wish you had known when you were first setting up your practice? Email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or tweet at us at Search. Also, we'd like to make a plug for the upcoming Canadian Surgical Forum, or CSF. This year, the conference is happening in Toronto from September 15th to 17th. There's a fantastic program this year, so be sure to register and attend. And as always, the links are in the show notes. Or at the very least, follow the session highlights on Twitter with the hashtag CSF2022. Corey, can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and career path up to this point? I grew up in a small town of Hope, BC, which is about two hours outside of Vancouver. Um, Little town tucked in the mountains. Um, Went to a high school with less than 500 kids. So um, I really enjoy the small town kind of experience. And growing up that way was um, pretty special for me. Um, I ended up moving to Chilliwack just after... I graduated just for some new life experiences. I didn't go very far. Um, and then I just, I did, hadn't thought about going to, you know, my lifelong dream wasn't to be an MOA. I hadn't thought about it. I just stumbled upon the MOA course. Um, it was actually my grandma who brought it up to me. And I jumped in and went for it. And the rest is history. <laughs> So for, for people who are outside of BC, a lot of people haven't heard this term MOA before. Can you just tell us what that stands for and what exactly, what is involved in the course? Where did you take it? How long did it take? Yeah, so MOA stands for Medical Office Assistant. Um, I think it was about a 10-month course. I finished it a bit early because it was, um, some of it was self-paced. Um, and then you do a practicum portion after the course um, in somebody's office um, with another MOA training you, that's usually about four weeks. Um, Yeah, it's the course itself, you're learning a lot of medical terminology, uh, pharmacology, uh, learning how to use your, I mean, when I took it, there wasn't a lot for EMR stuff out there. So now you would be learning um, how to use EMR systems, um, that sort of process, um, billing, you learn a kind of a brief rundown of billing. Um, yeah, just day-to-day clerical stuff for, for patients and, um, legalities and stuff like that, that you need to know to make sure that you're not getting you or your doctor in a bind when it comes to medical legal stuff. Corey, that sounds like a, a, a pretty long, uh, um, period of time uh, in terms of training and it certainly you know in my experience would reflect um, the complexities and the the various domains that 
an MOA really has to deal with almost on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. I, I was curious for our listeners, you know, besides bragging about growing up in Hope where Rambo was filmed uh, <laughs> and, and the significant uh, impact that must have had on you, I, I was curious if you could um, uh, walk us through uh, at a 30,000 foot level, what's encompassed in a typical surgeon's uh, office from the point of view of the MO. Um, so yeah, like when I took my course, a 10 month course, it's really just a, a brief rundown of what getting trained in what we might need to do in a family practice or a specialist's office. Um, it's kind of a generalized training, you know, you learn a lot of terminology and then you get, I got into a, a specialist office. So then, you know, the learning really begins because all of a sudden now you have to learn, you're kind of more, I've been in general surgery for 12 years now. So I, I know a lot of general surgery terms, whereas if you hear me in a gynecologist's office, then you're going to, you know, pick up a whole bunch of different terms. Um, so it starts, it's not just, you're not just a secretary, you're not just there answering the phones and booking appointments, you know, we're getting, you're getting calls from patients who are panicking because they've got something going on, they have no idea what to do or who to call, and they're reaching out to you. And then you're to make that call on, you know, what what's the next step that this patient needs to take and to reach out to the doctor. And um, so it's a bit more, that's what you kind of learn. And you kind of learn on a day to day basis, too, of every, every time a patient asks you a question, it's you, it different, you're learning something new and you've got to figure out where to go and how to take care of them and how to make sure that the situation is handled the best that it can. Um, at the end of the day, I treat the patients like they're my patients too, not just the doctor's patients, because I want to make sure that they get the best outcome possible, um, when they're visiting our office. Corey, I, I, I wish I had known you when I started uh, working. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm sure you hear this a lot, and, and uh, I have no doubt that it is common. And mm-hmm. that's that, you know, in, in my circumstance, for example, I went through a number of MOAs initially that uh, were lovely people, but mm-hmm. for a host of different reasons, were not a good fit at all. Mm-hmm. And then my, my current MOA I've had for many years and I love her to death and mm-hmm. I'm sure you would get along very well with her and she's incredible for many different reasons. Amir is starting out and he's, uh, you know, falling into your lap and, and mm-hmm. he's a lucky guy. But for people who are st- surgeons who are starting to work, junior faculty, they're, they're just coming on board. What should out on a positive sense and what should they look out for in a negative sense when um, they're starting to, uh, maybe they're in a private office and they're hiring an MOA, or maybe they're entering a hospital university-based system where they're being sort of uh, aligned uh, without choice with an MOA. Mm-hmm. What are some of the good features and some of the red flags? I think ultimately you want to find somebody that you're going to connect with. Um, maybe find somebody that has the same positive features that you do. Um, You know, you want to find somebody who's a hard worker, who's efficient, um, who multitasks, all of those things. But at the end of the day, you want to try and find somebody that you can connect with. Because, you know, if you have 
your MOA, chances are you're going to be talking to this, this person every day of the week. Um, you want to have a good relationship with that person. You know, they're not just your MOA. They're the forefront of your practice. Um, they're the first patient person that your patients are going to talk to or to see. So you want to have somebody that aligns with your values of how you want your practice to run. Um, that can be hard, hard to find in an interview. And as you get to know somebody, but it's hard. Interviewing is hard. Um, everybody's on their best behavior in an interview and they're going to tell you what you want to hear, right? If you ask them that the average interview question, what's your, you know, what's your skill set? Well, I'm a hard worker and I'm a, it's easy to say that you're a hard worker, but until you see that person working, like you don't, you don't know that. Um, so you really have to kind of try and read between the lines when you're, when you're doing an interview and, and try and maybe in the interview process, try and figure out how that person is as a person. Like, I don't know if that makes sense. Like try and figure out a little bit more about them outside of work, because that'll tell you a lot about how they, they will be in your office. So Corey, you know, you, uh, our listeners should know that you've actually been asked by other surgeons offices to actually come in and help when things are not going so well, when they're having trouble mm-hmm. with their assistant, when the things are falling through the cracks, uh, you know, I've heard some terrible stories mm-hmm. uh, about situations where you've been called in specifically to r- sort of right the ship. So what are, and so you have a really good sense of what are, you know, what are good things to look for and what are not so good things to look for. So are there any key kind of interview questions or techniques that you think are important that people should be asking uh, when interviewing an MOA? Yeah. Um, you want to, interview questions are, are hard. Like it's, I haven't done a ton of interviewing per se. I've sat in with interviews. Um, I just really try to get a feel of the person, um, which again, that's hard for some people to do. Um, can't really think of any specific interview questions um, off the top of my head. I, I would maybe ask if, if somebody's dealt with a difficult situation in, in the past, in a previous job, or um, to explain that situation and, and see how they dealt with the situation, what the outcome of the situation was. Um, because in the difficult times, when you're dealing with a difficult patient or a difficult situation, that's where you're going to struggle the most and potentially shine the most. Um, so I would see if you know, what's, what's a difficult situation that you have had in the past? And how did, how did you work through that? And, and what was the outcome sort of thing? Corey, um, maybe another way of asking this is, how do you find a good MOA? Like, give us the insider scoop. Where, where do you go to actually find if you're, if you're, let's say, starting in private practice, or are looking for an MOA, or you're not joining someone else's practice? Mm-hmm. How do you find a good MOA? Where do you go? Are there any places people can look? Is it all word of mouth? Um, I mean, you can look. There's there's job posting services like Indeed or Craigslist. There's many groups on Facebook, MOA groups and that sort of thing. Um, 
one of your best bets is probably to reach out to your colleagues and talk to your colleagues, Emily's. Um, you know, we all chat. We know when we're talking to an office, you know, so-and-so is a good MOA because you know, you're chatting with these people, you're dealing with these people, you're getting referrals from these um, other MOAs. So I've had multiple doctors reach out to me and say, Hey, do you, do you know of anybody that's looking for work right now? Um, right now there seems to be few and far between. It seems to be very hard to find anybody. Um, but a lot of it is word of mouth. The only, the only issue with word of mouth is that you could be missing a really good green MOA. That's lots of people are scared to hire a green MOA and they're told by their colleagues, don't, don't do it because they've had bad experiences. I wouldn't necessarily write off hiring a brand new MOA just because they don't have experience. Um, because you might get a real gem. I started my career as 19 years old and I'm still working for the same doctor. Um, you know, that, that worked out. I didn't come into the field with a bunch of bad habits or anything like that. And I was completely trainable to how they wanted me to be. So there's a catch for each of them, right? You could get somebody that's a little bit more experienced, um, but they're kind of stuck in their ways and, or you could hire somebody green that is completely moldable. Um, they just might need a little bit more training and that's, that's available as long as you're willing to provide that to them. Those are such good points, uh, Corey. You know, my, my next question surrounds just touching on what you had brought up, which is that when presumably an anxious patient, and particularly I think that's probably the case for those of us who do cancer oncology work, mm-hmm. when, they, when they call you as that first point of contact, and you really are the face of not only the surgeon, of course, that you work with, but there's no question you're the face of the whole healthcare system at that point mm-hmm. and the most important person you know, that that patient will talk to probably for the month. Mm-hmm. How, how, how do you, um, uh, what sort of tools uh, do you use to talk to those patients? How do you frame, how do you put them a little bit more at ease than perhaps when they, when they dialed your number? How does that interaction go? Well, I always try to answer the phone with a smile on my face. Um, you can sense through somebody's voice when they're cranky or they're short or, they're frustrated. So I always try to answer the phone with a smile on my face and I try not to sound rushed. Um, you can tell when you phone somewhere too, and somebody's rushed and then it puts you in a panic. So when I, first thing I do when I answer the phone, you know, I say, good morning, Dr. So-and-so's office. And I, I try to sound calm because that's immediately going to bring that patient's level of anxiety down, even if it's just a little bit. Um, and then, you know, we start our conversation and, and you start to pick up if somebody's very nervous, um, they're stressed about a situation. So I try to do what I can to ease their nerves by explaining the process. Not everybody knows how the medical system works and the referral process and the time that it takes for everything. Everything takes time. So if they can understand the process, it becomes less frustrating for them navigating 
um, the medical system when they're not, they're not navigating the, the medical system on a daily basis, like you and I are, um, they don't understand that, you know, these things have to be done prior to this. So if they can get a, you know, Cole's notes version of me walking them through it, then they say, Oh, okay, well, that makes sense. Thank you for explaining that to me. And that is going to just ease that much more frustration with them, that much more anxiety. Um, and it makes the rest of their medical journey a little bit easier for them because they have a bit more of an understanding with on a day-to-day basis. Um, I think it just a little bit of explaining sometimes goes a long way. Yeah, that makes sense. Being calm and, and, and patience, uh, um, clearly goes a long way yeah. uh, in, in everything in life that we do. And we probably all need more of it. We could all learn mm-hmm. from you for sure. You, you know, the, the next thing we wanted to touch on was the concept of, of efficiency in, in an office. And I realize that's a 30,000 foot broad term, but mm-hmm. um, you know, one of the things from the outside that I, I think I've witnessed over the years is um, the importance of efficiency, particularly if you're a surgeon or surgeons are, are high volume uh, in in nature, whether that's operative or non-operatively, I'm curious how you set up your office and your day, and maybe even your week if it differs from day to day, in terms of trying to maintain that efficiency. Yeah, I'm a big list maker. I will write a list and then prioritize things that need to be done, um, things that are more urgent, and things that you know can wait a little bit. Um, procrastination is a big killer of efficiency. If you're going to hold, hold off on something and hold off on something, all of a sudden the, you know, the weeks go by really fast. So to just stay on top of things makes your office that much more efficient. Um, communication is a big efficiency thing too. If you're you and your MOA have good communication, your practice is going to be that much better. Um, so many offices don't have good communication. The MOAs hardly chat to their bosses about the day-to-day things. Um, they're scared to bother them. They're, you know, so it's if you can set up some sort of workflow where your MOA is okay to ask you questions, whether it be yes, it's okay that you text me, you know, I'm in surgery, I'm not going to answer you right away, but I will get back to you. Um, The more you allow that in the beginning, the more efficient that is going to be down the road. If your MOA is okay to ask you, hey, this patient's phoning about this, they're going to get used to your style of practicing. And, you know, they may not have to ask that question again down the road. So that will make things more efficient as you go. Um, everybody's different too with, you know, some, some people are list makers. Some people are, you know, post-it notes. Some people use the tasks in the EMR. Everybody's got their own little workflows. You just have to figure out what is going to work well with you and your, your MOA and know when something's not working well, that it's okay to change it. You can't, you know, something's not working well, you keep trying over and over and over again. And it's like, hey, we need to just change this. It's not working well. Let's do something different because it might be better for 
your team. So Corey, I want to get a little bit granular here because I, I really do think this is, this is important because, you know, especially now that I've started life as an attending surgeon, mm -hmm. uh, you don't realize all the nuts and bolts and the mechanics that goes on in the background. If that's not going well, it's really hard to concentrate on your low anterior section when there's, you know, a fire brewing in your uh, office with your other patients. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. Corey, like there's obviously there, there's kind of a multiple components that you have to be in charge of. So one one aspect of it is just simply scheduling. Mm -hmm. How do you and, and you've been I mean, I think one thing that's nice about the setup uh, for myself and, and Bernie Shop, who I'm sharing the office with, is that there's a fairly predictable schedule of when the OR days are, when the mm -hmm. clinic days are, et cetera, et cetera. But when you're when you're looking at a given clinic day, how do you figure out uh you know, how many new consults to put in there, follow-ups, because, you know, you're not asking me every day, you know, how many patients should I put in or who should I put in where? A lot of this is happening behind the scenes uh, as it should, because I don't think, you know, uh, as a surgeon, we should have to necessarily think about that all the time. How do you go into figuring out specifically the scheduling aspects of uh, a surgeon's schedule? Yeah, you're absolutely right. A surgeon doesn't need to be thinking about their schedule and whether or not their Monday is booked enough um, in the clinic because that's why you hired an MOA is to take care of your scheduling, to take that off your plate so that you can focus on doing other things. Um, in a surgeon's office, you know, it's in family practice, you just you just book the appointments. It doesn't necessarily matter. In a surgeon's office, you have your endoscopy days, you have your general daycare, your ambulatory care, you know, smaller cases, and you have your surgery days. Those days need to be filled. We have resources that are given to us, and it is important that that time doesn't get wasted. So when you're looking at that, I have, you know, this much endoscopy time per week, I have this much OR time per week. I need to make sure that I'm filling the office with this many surgical patients and this many endoscopy patients. And you need to be looking four to six weeks out. Um, if you don't have a, a little bit of a, there's a fine line between how big of a wait list of patients you need. Um, if you don't have a wait list, you are constantly going to be scrambling to pull patients into the office to get them to be booked for surgery. Otherwise your surgery time is going to be given to another surgeon. Um, I mean, if you have a gigantic wait list and your, your surgery wait is nine months down the road, then you don't have to worry about that scramble. But then it's, you know, the catch 22, your patients are phoning your office constantly, you're getting three times as many phone calls your MOA is dealing with because your wait list is so long, and your patients are disgruntled because they're having to wait. So there's this you know, nice little spot where if you can be booked a certain amount out, um, you know that I need to have this many endoscopy patients in, in a week and this many surgical patients. And then you're always going to get the consults that don't book anything. They're, they're not, you know, you can't guarantee any 14 scope patients to come in a week and I'm going to book 14 consults. No, you probably actually need 25 consults for endoscopy to come in. And because a lot of them aren't going to book at all, or they're not going to book in the time frame that you want because they have some other life going that's things going on. Um, 
it is a constant, constant juggle to make sure that you have enough consults coming in for the appropriate things. And then you have to have your office time for your follow-ups. Um, so it's definitely a constant juggle and it's something that you constantly have to be looking at going forward. You have to look about, you know, four to six weeks out, what do I have coming in here now so that my surgery days two months down the road are going to be full. Yeah. And I, and I recognize obviously that's going to vary a lot based mm -hmm. on the surgeon, the type of practice you have and uh, you know, how quickly you see patients in the office, mm -hmm. right? Those are all real, all, all obviously factors as well that go into that scheduling part of it. And the second part, you know, I think that I, I, I'd love for you to share your method. I know you said that obviously everybody has their own workflow, but mm -hmm. I'm sure you've seen enough different workflows to kind of get a sense of what works and what doesn't, you know, there's constant things that people need that surgeons need to follow up on. So it's whether, for example, I get called about someone while I'm on call, but it's not really something that I need to see emergently. So, okay, send them to the office or if it's lab results or test results, um, uh, or even patient questions, et cetera, et cetera. How do you try to integrate that into a surgeon's workflow such that things don't get missed? Um, and you know, no, no patient falls between the crack, the, the track or between the cracks rather. Mm -hmm. Are there any things that you've, uh, picked up? Is it, is it, do you put everything in the EMR? Uh, what are your tips and tricks? Um, I try to book everybody for a follow-up any procedure that we do i i just try to book them for a follow-up um it's easier to you know i pre-schedule them it's easier to cancel somebody that doesn't need a follow-up than the opposite accidentally not scheduling somebody for a follow-up because for whatever reason, we didn't get their pathology report that didn't come across our desk and we didn't book them for a follow-up appointment and they've fallen through the cracks and their pathology came back. Not good. So I would, I pre-schedule people, everybody for a follow-up. They've had their procedure, you know, your report comes back and says, patient to follow up with their family doctor. Okay, no problem. Now I know that their appointment case scenario we phone them and just say hey your your results are normal and you know you're don't need to come back and see us for five years oh okay the patient says great that's fantastic thanks so much um i would rather over communicate with patients than under communicate with patients if that makes sense yeah that makes total sense you know Corey, one of the things one of the many things obviously that's changed uh during this pandemic covid era has been the explosion i think probably probably globally mm -hmm. of virtual consults um whether that's on the phone or video based or or a mix of both uh i think have really become popular and helpful for patients and and physicians and their offices mm -hmm. alike i'm curious how you frame the virtual consultation and in particular if there's things that represent bigger challenges from your end of things or are they easier uh, what are the do's and don'ts that surround that particular sort of new uh, avenue mm -hmm. um, definitely some pros um, for the virtual consult it's it's easier for a lot of patients. Everybody's busy nowadays. Everybody's on the go, go, go. So 
for patients not to have to come and sit in the waiting room, um, to not have to drive to the office, um, for the doctor just to call them. Lots of patients prefer it. Um, some patients still do like the one-on-one. They like to come into the office. Um, I find that typically more so with the older generation. Um, the, sometimes it's an outing for them, right? They like to come into the office and, and chit-chat because they don't have a lot of other stuff going on. Um, but the, the virtual, um, for the most part, people have really, they enjoy it because they don't have to sit and wait in a waiting room. They don't have to take half the day off to come to an appointment. They can quickly take their lunch break and, and take, a, take a doctor's call. Um, some of the negatives that I see from that is you lose a little bit of the personal relationship with your patient. Um, I, there's a lot of patients that I don't even see in the office anymore because, you know, I book their phone consultation, they chat with the doctor, they go to the hospital, they meet with the doctor, and then again, they do their follow-up over the phone. So there's a lot of patients that I don't even meet face-to-face anymore. Um, which it's, it's a little bit sad, you know, you get to know your patients and you, um, it's, I find a little bit easier to walk people through instructions when you're able to hand them a piece of paper and, and walk them through it rather than over the phone and just emailing it to them. Um, but definitely the, the ease of things, um, it's more flexible for the doctors too. Um, you know, you guys get stuck in the OR and you, you can't get to the office on time. Well, I just can quickly move some phone appointments around to the end of your day or, or to the next day. And then we're not in a, a panic all day, running an hour behind all day. So I definitely see more, more positives than negatives with the virtual, the virtual care for sure. Corey, um, you know, one of the things that you and I have uh, chatted about or discussed or mulled over is the office setup itself. And, you know, obviously this is going to vary place to place, uh, type of practice, number of surgeries, et cetera. But I'm curious what your thoughts are about the way the physical office is structured as well as the way that patients come in through the door. So what I mean by that is, you know, in the old days, I remember my dad's office, everybody would have, you know, the, all the offices would have all these magazines everywhere. You mm-hmm. know, Reader's Digest was a classic. I think I've, I think I've read from going and sitting in my dad's office uh, when I was in school and sometimes studying at his, at his office. I think I've read like hundreds of Reader's Digests, which maybe I shouldn't be saying uh, <laughs> online in the podcast. My dad will kill me. But, you know, like, what are some of the things that you think are important to have physically in the office like should everybody get a tv um should we get an aquarium like what are the things that you think really matter to patients or that you think would be helpful for patients and the second thing is um you know sometimes i i wonder if patients actually like coming into the office and seeing that it's a busy place because they get Mm -hmm. some external validation that look this is a this is a busy person this surgeon, he or her, uh, you know, they're really busy. They clearly have lots of people come to see them. They must be good. Or do people get irritated by the fact that, okay, we're having to wait or that it's so busy. I'd be mm-hmm. curious on your thoughts on both those fronts. Um, yeah, I think some people definitely think, you know, they see that, oh, it's a, it's a long wait to get in for my appointment. This, this doctor must be good. 
Um, I, from my end, more often than not, people are annoyed about having to wait, um, whether it be in the clinic, sitting and, and waiting for their appointment, or whether it be for their consultation, they have to wait 12 weeks to get in to see the doctor. Um, I get a lot of complaints about that. Um, you know, and you have to, I'm sorry, I can, you know, do my best. I'll put you on a cancellation list. I'll try to get you sooner. Um, and I do my best to do that. Um, but it's challenging. People, people are frustrated. I've already been waiting this long. I've already, you know, all of this, this stuff. And, and you can't please everybody. Somebody's going to complain one way or the other. Um, but I, I think more often than not, people are a little bit annoyed about waiting rather than looking at the positive side of it. Oh, this doctor's, you know, got a whole bunch of people waiting here. They must be, they must be a popular dude. They must be a good, a good surgeon because look at all the people waiting to see them. Um, yeah. Some people might have that thought in their head, but they don't voice it to me. What they voice to me is why do I have to wait this long? Why am I sitting here for 25 minutes? You must have not scheduled him properly if I'm sitting here waiting for half an hour. Um, that's the the feedback that I get versus, you know, oh, this guy must be this guy must be good because I'm sitting here waiting because everybody wants to see him, sort of thing. Um, as for like office, uh, what people might want in the office. Um, a good flow I've seen offices where the MOA's backs are actually turned to the door the desk was opposite of the door so when a patient came in um, you know the MOA was back towards you and that's not that's not very great like it's not a nice greeting when you come into the office because the MOA might be on the phone and they might not be able to turn to you and say hello how can I help you right away um, people want to be greeted when they are in the office. They want to know they're in the right place. They're coming, maybe they're uncomfortable about why they're seeing the surgeon. So come into an office that feels comfortable where somebody says, hello, how are you doing? Are you just checking in? Um, instantly that's going to calm their nerves. Um, having a nice, you know, flow where you can walk right into the exam room, um, is important too. Like, I, everybody wants something a little bit different. I think um, some people like the everything to be very, you know, flashy and new and updated. Um, and other people don't mind if, you know, like our office is kind of cozy, I would say, but I get lots of compliments on it. People like the way, the, the way that it is. So um, yeah, I don't, I don't know how much the aesthetics, side of it matters to patients as long as it's not really run down and, and just a weird layout that the, definitely the, the desk facing opposite of patients walking in was a weird layout to me. What are, uh, what are some of the good EMRs that you've used? And I, I know that you've used a bunch of different ones. Mm -hmm. What do you think? And, and, you know, we're just to be clear to our listeners, we're not sponsored by any, <laughs> any EMRs or any companies, we have no affiliations. This is really purely, uh, and you aren't either, 
just to really purely get a sense of what are some good EMRs and specifically let's go through a few like Acuro, Plexia. What are some of the, the pluses and minuses of, of these different EMRs? Mm-hmm. Um, I've used mostly med access and Acuro. Um, I've seen some of the other programs, but haven't really worked day to day with them. So I can't comment so much on those ones. Um, definitely my favorite program to work with would be Acuro. Um, it's just very user-friendly. It's very streamlined. It's very adaptable. You can customize pretty much everything that you would want on there to make it work with your practice. Um, the other program I use, MedAccess, there's um, little bit, it's a little bit more finicky when it comes to certain aspects, building forms and making forms. We're constantly getting new forms from, you know, our health authority and we have to tweak little things and update things. And Acuro has made that very easy to, for the user, the MOA to just go in and adjust these things where um, if I met access, it's, much more challenging to go fix this form and often you need to actually phone tech support and have them do it for you so that's a hassle um i don't like to phone and sit on hold when i've got a million other things to do to ask them to change something on one of the forms that you know our health authority has decided needs updating i would rather just do it myself so i don't i don't like that aspect of it it does have things that you know, Akiro doesn't have. So um, I had actually mentioned something to you the other day, and I can't remember off the top of my head, it was a nice little benefit that it had. Um, but I definitely, in a, in a specialist's office, um, I think Akiro is a little more user-friendly than, than that access. How, how about Plexia, Corey? Have you ever used Plexia? I haven't used, I've seen a little bit. Um, I haven't used a lot of Plexia. I have heard um, it's also a very good program. Um, I, right now, like a lot of the, the surgeons in Abbotsford and our group anyways, are all using Akiro. Um, so I just haven't had a lot of experience with Plexia to, to make a lot of judgment calls on it. Yeah, the, the world of, of EMRs is certainly interesting. As you probably know, in Alberta, the entire province is going to connect care, which uh, has some pluses and some negatives for sure. Mm-hmm. So it'll, it'll, be, it'll be interesting for the rest of the country to, to watch us transition into that uh, uh, interesting time. Mm-hmm. Um, my understanding, Corey, is that you've also done a lot of billing for a lot of surgeons for quite a while. I'm curious, again, how you frame billing. What are the absolute do's and don'ts, the tips and tricks? Uh, both on the on the surgeon side of things. So when Amir started with you, what what did you tell him were the absolute uh, um, um, do's and don'ts in terms of what he had to hand you and what he had to track? And then uh, at the back end, what makes your your job that much easier and that much more difficult? Mm-hmm. Um, definitely keeping some sort of record of what you have asked to be billed, it, whether or not you're doing the billing or you're having your MOA do the billing, um, having some sort of, whether it be a physical written book of all of your billings or whether it be, you know, a, a 
Excel sheet that you can share with your MOA um, because you, obviously this is in your EMR and your records are all EM, in your EMR, but if you're on call and you have a million different things going on and you go to put your billings in your EMR and you miss a code or you miss, you know, it, you miss a few codes here and there, it adds up. So if you had some sort of, some sort of easy, whether you put it down, you take the, the patient's labels from the chart and you put it on a little, a little book that you keep in your briefcase or um, whatever, and just quickly scratch it down and then transfer it into some sort of record keeping um, method when, you know, Dr. Shop has a black book. He's used this his entire practice. This is what he does. I have endless amounts of times gone back into that book when our rejections come through and looked and thought, okay, this is what we build. Obviously we need to change it, but to have that, to go back to look at and not just try and remember off the top of your head or for your MOA, your MOA doesn't know what you did when you were in the hospital. She knows what you did when you were in the office, but when you're on call, most of the time she has no idea that you've seen somebody at two in the morning and that needs a consult code and an after hours code. Um, so to have some sort of reference point that you can look back, um, if, if you need to look back at it five months down the road because MSP is rejecting it, um, then you have something to go on, not just, oh, here's a list of you know, a couple things that I scribbled down. And if this piece of paper was crumpled up in my pocket, um, can you figure it out for me? Well, sure, I can figure it out for you, but chances are something's going to get missed and you're not going to build that you could have built because it wasn't organized properly. Um, that's not efficient. That's not, that's not my like motive. I want to make, make you make as much as you can and billings are important. So um, some sort of record keeping, I think would be the biggest, the biggest one. Don't just rely on your, your EMR to do that for you. Dr. Will, I'm curious. I don't think I've ever asked you this. What do you do? How do you keep track of your bill? Uh, yeah, very similarly. Um, I don't think, you know, writing it down, uh, versus a, an EMR that you entered into, one way or the other matters a whole bunch once you and your biller, if that's your MOA or as you know, in many places, it's a separate person entirely or a separate company. Um, as, as long as you guys all align and everyone's agreeing. And, and I think the most important thing that Corey mentioned there, of course, is just not to miss things. So mm -hmm. if you, if you do a phone call or you, you see a consult or you do a small procedure to have some system to document it immediately, wherever you are, and then uh, communicate that well. Yeah. Uh, I, I, mean, I won't gripe about this too much, but it does slightly irritate me that we have these electronic medical records and, uh, you know, it's easy to build things that you've seen in the office, but the call stuff is really irritating. And so mm -hmm. I wish there was an easier way on an app or something like that. So any EMR companies listening to this, I'm, I'm giving you marching orders. There, there ought to be a better <laughs> way to upload this stuff easily such that I don't have to transfer it from a paper record then onto the EMR for billing. But anyways, that's just my early, early career griping. 
I, I uh, agree with that 100%. If you had, if we had apps on our phones, we all have our phones in our pockets. So if you had an app on your phone, you've seen a patient at three o'clock in the morning on a Saturday, and you could quickly scan, scan something, scan the patient's label, and it gets put into your, it gets registered into your EMR, and you can quickly punch in your billing codes. I don't think that that is that hard or impossible to do. And it would make that so much easier. It would just, that ease, you wouldn't have to miss anything because you just know I just need to scan this label. It's it's inputted into my system and I punch in my billing codes. Um, definitely something that that needs to happen for especially on-call stuff. Well, Corey, we can't thank you enough for uh, spending the, the time with us on the show today. It's really been informative. I think this is going to be helpful for any anyone starting out in practice. Uh, I know I've benefited from your expertise tremendously over the last two months. Uh, so thank you for that. I just wanted to also mention that you're like a very, very busy person. You've got a ton of side hustles going on. Mm -hmm. uh, can you tell us a little bit about those? And also, if people want to find you on social media, et cetera, where did, where did, where can people go to find you? Um, yeah, so I am a also small time farmer. <laughs> um, my partner and I, his family has a 500 acre farm outside of hope. So we do that as well as we have a small campground. So um, that's called Washtock Family Farm. And then I also do some MOA consulting on the side. Um, just, yeah, I've, I've helped go into offices and helped where the wheels are falling off, get things back on track and make things um, a little bit more efficient and easy for them, as well as just practice startup for doctors that are need to find an MOA and need, you know, to get their practice going efficiently and well. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your thoughts, comments, and feedback. So send us an email at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or tweet at us at CanJSurge. Thanks again.